All right, Pat, we're here. Season three, episode three, entitled Walk of Punishment. Or in this case, we're doing our own little walk of punishment as we slowly trudge towards the Red Wedding, knowing kind of all the painful decisions that are going to come as a result of it, man. You got anything to add to that? I know I kind of st- I kind of stole your thunder tonight. Hey, listen, Dom, I, I think the Walk of Punishment is Theon's whole storyline. <laughs> I, I think the, uh, you know. Uh, man, you are not going to let that go. You are the, not going to let that go. Listen, the Talking Thrones uh, family here, the, the Talking TV family, is going to agree with me that uh, in this particular episode, it's the Walk of Podrick that matters. <laughs> All that and more. Stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, not to hover on that joke for too much, but like, man, if there was anybody that wins this episode, it is Patrick Payne. God damn. Talk about getting yeah, rewarded hey, for his service. Do you think the screenplay was interior? Tyrion's chamber's day. <laughs> you know, Tyrion and well, Braun sit around. Sit around. And they, just shooting the they, shit. Pop they read the, They read the books, you know, trying to figure out what how Littlefinger shuffled around the money of the, the money, kingdom. And then they realize, oh, he just does what literally everyone else does. Just barter from somebody else, promised him to pay him back with no intention of yeah. ever doing so. Podrick, beaming, skips into the room, oh, uh, spring in his, his step. step. <laughs> and, and Tyrion's like, oh, come on, that's more than I pay you in a year. And, Tyr- and Bronn's like, you, you don't even pay him. And he's like, they wouldn't take the money. And Tyrion's like... Uh, they, they, it's at the back of it's great. I, I, I don't want to kind of like at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves too much, but this is hey, they break out the wine. They need they're like we the gotta details. talk. We we need some deets right here. We 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 spill spill the tea and, and if you will. This is a joke that you know definitely uh, is planned really well in this episode, and it actually continues uh, later on. I yes, believe. It does. Uh, uh, I forgot what season it is, but uh, basically Braun sneaks up on Podrick later on and reminds him of his uh, good deeds. That, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, that was also episode, that was also our episode, our, our favorite season that we keep talking about behind the scenes, season six. When, yeah, when, yeah, when so. Jamie and Braun are in the Riverlands and Brienne and Pod go there in order to negotiate with them. So listen, you know, Podrick basically is the epitome of the male ego yes. in this episode. And, you know, everybody's... All contained within, within his fragile, plump, innocent looking face. Yeah. And I think it, it cements him as like one of the uh, fan favorites just because of like how silly, how, you know, it's it's sort of borderline immature. But for the most part, it's one of those things that... You know, hey, good for Podrick. Yeah, Pod, Pod, but like I said, Podrick Payne, winner of this episode. I, I love, again, this episode is sponsored by Podrick Payne, quite possibly one of the best characters in this episode. Again, one of the one of the few characters in this entire show to actually get like a pretty damn good like you know upward trajectory up until the very up until the very end. You know, and he actually gets like kind of like a suitable ending. You know, for, for his good deeds. But we're talking about season three, episode three, entitled "The Walk of Punishment." Right. This is again mostly again. We're right now. We're just in the midst of the story. We're continuing to build up to the midpoint of the season right before things take like kind of the next hard shift right now for the most part everything is a continuation this is the first episode one of only three episodes that is actually directed by one of the show's creators in addition to being written by them written by benioff and weiss who wrote a majority of the show this episode is directed by david benioff famously uh the only other two episodes that will be directed by these two db weiss um directs the premiere of season four two swords and then the two of them both co-direct the finale ultimately which we'll get to that but uh yeah and it's really interesting as far as that goes because this episode 
Very similar to what is Dead May Never Die last season, right? Which was another third episode of a season that we really, really had a large fondness for where kind of a lot happened as far as action-wise. I wouldn't say that this episode has as much that happens in it, but there's still, like, quite a lot that happens in this episode as far as, like, continuing to, like, build towards the stuff. So, you know, our, our ponderous up aside, let's just get into it. So opening up once again, we got our three main storylines that we got going on in the Riverlands that we're following. So the opening scene where, oh, man, I know we've talked about this. We built up to it, but... uh River Run. So this is the first time that we see the castle of River Run. Obviously, Catelyn Stark, or formerly Catelyn Tully's childhood home. They're at the they're at the funeral of Rob's grandfather, Catelyn's father, um, Hoster Tully, who has just recently died. They're standing there. They're with um, obviously Talisa, and we're introduced to two other the other two surviving members of Cat's family, aside from Lysa, who we met in the first season. We have Cat's young Cat and Lysa's youngest brother, Edmer Tully, portrayed by the Crown, and um, what's that sh uh, show? Outlander alumni Tobias Mendes, and then her uncle. Um, Rob's great uncle, Brendan the Blackfish Tully, portrayed by Clive Russell. We have a very humorous scene where <laughs> I, just, I love this scene. I love this Dude, scene so much. Freaking like, Edmure picks how up the arrow. How could you mess up? How times. could you do this? Three times in a row. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I love how too. It's like yeah. he tries. Brendan just fucking has the this look of disgust. Pushes him to the side. Doesn't even try to like make him like have any respect. Straight up pushes him to the side. Picks up the arrow. Takes one look and tell where the gust of wind is getting and yeets it. Hits it with one shot. Like oh man, I don't know yeah, how you it, get like a better character introduction than that. See, see, listen, the Blackfish basically is the underutilized MVP of this show because. Uh, and gets done dirty by the show too. Be, be, besides this episode, he's in nothing but the the two episodes. I, I believe two episodes in which he's under siege later on, and and he ends up just fighting to his death. And you know he he's such a great actor, such a great storyline. Like, what the hell happened? Like, why is the Blackfish not in this show a lot more than he yeah. is? Yeah, it's, it's just boy, well, because the whole thing, right, is that so famously it, it happens a little bit differently in the books than the show. So the whole thing, right, is that the Blackfish actually does appear in like a significant amount of episodes in, throughout this season. The last we see of him is the Red Wedding famously, but he is one of the only people who's actually able to escape from the Red Wedding. He literally the last scene that he has, is he's telling Kat that he's going to take a piss before the actual like massacre begins. And, and famously later on, and, see, and again, that all the Riverland storyline is like pretty much forgotten and kind of left to its own device until later on in season six, when the blackfish manages to get together a garrison to reclaim river run and take it back from the phrase. The whole thing is that in the books, the blackfish never goes with them to the red wedding. He famously stays at river run and continues to run it. Even during the season, the whole thing is they're under siege the entire time uh, during like kind of the fray. Once the phrase take over the riverlands and the whole thing that actually, again, how the show, how the books clearly were planning for some certain things that the, that the show just needed to get over with, which is that. So obviously we know he has the famous off-screen death in the show, but in the books, the Blackfish after the siege of Riveron and after Jamie pulls the whole like kind of 180 with Edmure and using Edmure as, as bait in order to take back the castle, the Blackfish escapes again. And he's seen and last seen in like parts unknown. So like the whole thing about the Blackfish is that he's establishes this character who is just this kind of this legendary badass, never really wanted any glory. You know, obviously it's famously known he earned his nickname based off his long running feud with his brother. But obviously, you know, with this really touching scene that he has with Cat later on in the castle, he tells him, he's like, I don't even remember. He's like, he is like, he, I mean, he's been calling me Blackfish so long. He doesn't even remember why he started call why he started calling me that. He said it was a bad joke. You know, and it's kind of like never yeah, said, but and, and people have forgotten what his real name is. But right. Uh, the main thing is like this character is amazing. And the fact is, yeah, it might be peppered in there a few episodes during this season. But the fact is, like, 
you know, I've skipped ahead and I'm like rewatching this series, uh, you know, kind of in like binge mode and it like all of a sudden cut to season six and, and he's um, back, you know, he's back and he's badass as ever. And it's one of those things where like, where has his character been? Right. You know, why, why is this not like sort of one of the C or D storylines in which the Lannisters have to deal with? Right. And, yeah. And season six had a couple of those. Cause season six did that with the Blackfish. It did that with Osha and Rickon after they'd been gone for a couple seasons. There were like a couple other characters that came back. But, and then obviously Gendry famously later in season seven, like Game of Thrones had a couple of, of moves like that. You know, like a few of them were, were based on the book. So they were accurate. A few of them were just kind of like out of sync and like kind of weirdly done. A few of them were, it's like, okay. It literally, literally just felt like, okay, we just needed to bring these guys back in order to wrap yeah up, you know? it's it's one of those things where it's like the show you know i still think uh did a lot of things uh really well and it's it's kind of um you know we do do criticize it from time to time but for the most part they're able to uh put a storyline on the back burner let us forget about it and then bring it back and, and they're really good with their sort of how they transition storylines in and out of what the main focus is. Um, I, I just really do believe the Blackfish was is underutilized because uh, because of this opening moment where he's introduced. It, it's it's one of those things where it's like, oh man, give me more of that uh, character. Yeah. And you know, we we in hindsight, we don't really have as much as we could uh, yeah. really have. And you know, it's one of those things where I think the show could have had some really awesome scenes with this character. And, uh, me, and meanwhile, I feel like the opposite, the total opposite can be said about Edmure because Edmure is like, man, by the time you bring him, you bring him back. You're literally even the blackfish is like, what the hell? Why is he back? And then when he comes back at the finale, you're almost like, oh yeah, this guy, he's still around. Okay. And then it's immediately established. like, yeah, there, there, there was yeah. A, this guy is the runt of the litter. He has no idea what he's doing. He's another Theon Greyjoy, but just like, yeah, but kind of, I, I think, you know, uh, the fact is that they lay siege to the Blackfish in the later season, and Enmir comes in and he sort of betrays uh, him and gives up the castle. Like that moment is a little anticlimactic because they underutilize these two characters, uh, you know, between. Uh, season three and season, season six. six. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's one of those things where like uh, if, if you really focus on these characters, even if you just put them in like an episode or two uh, uh, in season four and, and maybe an episode in season five, and you sort of just kept them on the back burner, but a little more in the, the mindset of the viewer. Um, you know, I, I just think that sort of storyline would have paid off a lot better. Yeah, I agree and wholeheartedly. And it, it kind of reflects in this next scene, right? Which is the whole thing again. Like we've been talking this entire time about how, again, every decision that Rob seems to have made since coming out after Ned Stark's death has just been like one slowly like inclement disaster after another. And this is just another one where Rob is not only now dealing with the fact that he has pretty much all of his forces are disagreeing with him and not necessarily in favor of him. But now he's got to deal with his incompetent uncle who also is not that far removed from him age wise. Like the, cause the whole thing is that Edmure was still relatively young when Rob was born, obviously. And Rob is obviously cast firstborn. So th there's not too much of an age difference between Rob and Edmure. Um, you know, the way they were like certain other uncles and siblings. And so the whole thing is that like, even, and the whole thing is that Edmure, it's very obvious in this scene still looks down upon Rob as his nephew and not as, you know, the king and, and the blackfish well, I, I to remind him of that. I, I think it's one of those things where Edmir uh, keeps it more casual than people expect him to. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, we're on the same level, you know, hey, nephew, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and it's like Rob has been elevated to king. So it, it definitely shows 
um, you know, even even with the immediate inner circle, you know, which Edmure would be more part of than, um, you know, the Boltons, etc., uh, that they, they don't even see him as this glorious king. It's just like, hey, you're my nephew, you know, just uh, some run-of-the-mill type guy. So, you know, I think I think it's very clever what they do here. It's like they make Edmure seem sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, flippant and, and naive and, and basically just not yeah, it shows. Really, really into it, uh, making mistakes. Like he captured the windmill instead of doing what Rob really needed him to right. do strategically. And ultimately cost him like a pretty big strategic because he, he cost them their chance to capture and kill the mountain. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's one of those things where like uh, Edmir messes up, but also Edmir is, is keeping it very casual and uh, doesn't really understand the importance of what's going on. And, you know, I think it's one of those things that just shows uh, in a very casual sense that things are not right in the Stark camp. Yeah, you know, to, to it, say the least. And like Rob even knows it. Like this is in the sense of like where when Rob turns around and he does that sense where he looks out the window and he's like, you know, who isn't uh, desperate for and he kind of reminds him. It's like, you know, Edmure tries to do the, you know, oh, for every man that we lost, we took down. And then Rob's like, we need our men more than Tywin Lannisters. Like he's like, uncle, wake up. You do not understand. We are at a strategic disadvantage. We are losing. I am losing the faith of my men. And, he, and we need all the victories that we can get right now. And it kind of shows just as far as his desperation. And then we obviously have the quick scene afterwards with Talisa treating the two Lannister boys, obviously who, um, you know, Edmure captured at the mill and the whole thing that Rob Dude, establishes that is was, like, oh, that was, that was so that great. Scene is like, great. You think Tywin is going to care about his, what, his father's brother's great grandsons or something like that? I like, and the, the connection is so distant again. There's so many Lannisters. Yeah, but, like Tywin... But- the fact that Talisa basically finds the time to toy with these two yeah. uh, children, it's like, yeah, my, my husband, you know, he eats, uh, he eats people and, and basically don't worry about it. He doesn't eat children, but wait, is it a full moon? Yeah. And also did, did <laughs> you, you know? uh, did you catch the, uh, did you catch the early casting? Because famously, um, the one who plays on um, Martin Lannister, I believe is Dean Charles Chapman, who would later go on to play Tom and Lannister in the next season. Oh, really? No. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, obviously Tommen is still like too young. Tommen, I don't think actually appears at all this season. But yeah, Tommen is still you know in his Callum Weary days. But then the, yeah, this guy, this Lannister, he just moves quite literally moves up the totem pole as far as Lannisters go. Yeah, I saw I saw him. I'm like, hey, there's Dean Charles. But uh, yeah, it's uh could it just could it, again an, a great introduction to the rest of uh, Catelyn's family. Uh, again, a really heartbreaking, uh, touching, emotional scene between Catelyn and her uncle, and just again more further emphasis that Rob is. Rob is not a great, in a great position right now. And his position is only continuing to dwindle as the season goes on. Uh, but next, we, we have the big one. We have the big scene. You know, like I said, there, there's only two scenes with these two uh, and within the Riverlands. But this is, this is a pivotal scene. There's a pivotal moment in the run of the show, obviously, and kind of how it builds and how it ends, right? So we pick up with Jamie and Brienne. Obviously, they, they've been captured by uh, Bruce Bolton's forces led by Locke and are bringing them to Harrenhal. Um you get uh, you get this really interesting conversation that they have in the back. Obviously, we hear the, this is the first time that we hear uh, the bear and the maiden fair being sung by them. Uh, more some more ominous foreshadowing for the future. And uh, Jamie and Brand are talking and you know kind of you know trading barbs back and forth. Jamie's trying to make up excuses. It's like, oh, if I was in better, you know, if I was in my peak fighting shape, and Brienne is throwing it back in his face and everything. And it gets to the point where it's like Brienne kind of is right, and so Jamie throws something back in her face with that. When we make camp, these men are gonna try and rape you. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They will try and rape you. And even kind of tries to like 
Coach Lute is like, when you do, it's better to not fight back because otherwise they'll break your teeth. You know, as far as that goes, like Brienne does, uh, you know, Brienne, of course, and like there's a reason why these two are so awesome together because Brienne, Brienne's the first person to like check Jamie almost. She's like, if that were you in that position, would you fight back? And Jamie's kind of like, oh, I, w- I wouldn't even get myself caught in that position to begin with, you know? And it's, it's, it's really ominous foreshadowing because again, we don't see these two obviously until the ending scene of this episode, which is again, this is. It's a big moment for Jamie, ultimately, and, and not in a good way. This is this is the hey, moment that quite literally sets him off for the rest of the show. Yeah, I think it's 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 one of those things. Again, like I I don't typically do this, but uh, I found myself, uh, you know, before we decided to jump on here and talk about the episode, uh, I had a little bit of time, so I watched that uh, end of episode uh, talk between uh, Benny Ice and and Weiss there, uh, Benny Off and Weiss. And they basically point out that Jamie is one of those uh, characters that likes to uh, use his family name and talk his stuff yeah, out of situations. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, we see that when he's like, oh, hey, uh, Brianna Tara is from this uh, place and, you know, that stands for the the Sapphire Islands and that's where all the sapphires and land come from. Uh, so you'll, you'll get your weight in, in Sapphire if you uh, definitely do not harm her. And, you know, basically, you know, he, he decides... Uh, Locke, I believe, uh, is yep. his name. Decides, Different character hey, in the books. I would, I would also like to point out, I know we, we obviously had yeah. the introduction of this character last episode, but uh, completely different character in the books. We obviously have, the, again, the British version of Locke, who is, again, to kind of just introduce another one of the Twisted Boltons, portrayed by longtime character actor Noah Taylor, famously appeared in uh, Almost Famous, has been in a lot of other things. I really like that guy. He's a great actor. Famously, also, uh, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt's uh, kind of little helper worker being uh, Edge of Tomorrow, also. He's been, he's been in a lot of things, this guy. And uh, yeah. in, in the books, it is a completely different for character, I believe it's a cohoric mercenary by the name of oh man, I am not going to remember his name at all. But uh, but it's a guy <laughs> who speaks with a little. Whoa, Dom! But man, yeah, it's, I, it, I know, you. right? First time, first time, right? But um, yeah, it, it is a completely different character. It is um, Vargo Hote. Vargo Hote is the name of the character in the book. He actually is the leader of his own. He's not a Bolton soldier. He's the leader of his own mercenary camp that are actually called the um, the Brave Companions. I believe the whole thing, right? Is they're they're often compared to the Brotherhood Without Banners, but the Brave Companions are um, are, are a vicious mercenary crew that uh, that Bruce Bolton employs. And the whole thing that kind of like is a established with the lock character at the end as far as like with Jamie and everything right when they sit down and they make camp finally the men obviously go off to like do their deed with Jamie with, with it is that again this is the, the reason to me why this is truly the beginning of Jamie's journey right the, the first two seasons those are just establishing like who Jamie was right but that's the reason why Jamie didn't have as much to do perspective in the first two seasons character wise as opposed to like when like this this whole season really kicks off Jamie's arc because this is the first instance where Jamie realizes that he's not going to be able to rely on his father and his family name forever, which is kind well, of, again, like, you know, I, I think it's one of those things. The, the, the fact is like, and, and the, you know, the writers of the show kind of hit the nail on the head when they're talking about it is the fact is everything that we've seen Jamie do, he's been able to sort of talk his way into some sort of uh, form of safety. And then, uh, you know, he tries to escape and then he gets captured and then he, uh, he's able to sort of talk his way into a different situation. And he's he's always sort of kicking the can down the road of being punished by his enemies. Uh, you know, he's using his name. He's using his sort of like, you know, basically history that people know uh, to really keep himself relatively safe. And, 
you know, at this point, you know, you meet a character like Locke in this show who's just not going to have it. And he's going to treat Jamie like anybody else. It's like, well, bad right. stuff. And just because to he people. can, too. Just because he exactly. is that sort of a twisted character, he'll do it just because he can yeah. for no so, other reason. So, you know, when the moment happens at the end of the episode oh, where he's so great he how just, it's framed, too. Yeah, so he great just, how it's framed. Yeah, it, well, I love the part where it's like, um, you know, Jamie's tied to the tree and it's like, oh, can you please uh, let yeah. me lose? Well, no, well, that's the thing. Locke you know. is baiting him. Like, you think that Jamie's going to be the one to request it, which I think is actually how it goes in the book. But they do the little flip and switch where Locke baits him. And he's like, oh, yeah. I suppose, oh, well, Jamie first is the, oh, you know, if it wouldn't be too much to just take me out of these chains. Or right. Yeah, just I, I, well, he would like to sleep on his back tonight. Or right. Whatever, I, whatever the right. phrase is that he says. Right. And then Locke's like, oh, I suppose you'd like a, like a, like a, a table and a home cooked meal. And he's a lot better. Westeros, I will say, are a lot better at keeping their sarcasm to themselves than they are at uh you know and then they are at uh you know that we are i would say but obviously they bring him over the kick out his hand he falls on the table and he sticks the knife right in his eye too he's like again it's like you think every time you're in trouble you can just call out your daddy's name well guess what your daddy's not here and like here this should help you remember and then he brings a meat cleaver right down slices off jamie's right hand and like that's Yo, such and, a pivotal moment that scream, oh, oh man, it's, the way it's the such a good scream. The credit, and then they start yeah. playing the rock cover of Bear the Maiden Fair over it. It's like such a weird juxtaposition. Dude, yeah, that that is a weird jump for sure. Weird and jump, but it's, it's one, one of, of those things, things where it kind of works for me. To me, to me, knowing what happens uh, later on with uh, Jamie coming back and saving Brienne from the bear, um, I'm totally down for this song. Oh it, yeah, it just it's just sort it of totally like. Works. It's it's one of those things where like when you uh, go through the series and you look back and you rewatch it like we we've recently done, um, it just it kind of totally works. But when you first watch it, you're just like, what the hell? Are yeah, they you're doing? like, what the fuck? Um, it's ironic because probably two of my favorite songs that came from Game of Thrones are from this season: the Bear and the Maiden Fair and the Reigns of Casimir. Because the Reigns of Casimir is just the way that like kind of like the cello and the underlying beat kind of echoes and reverberates slowly, building up to the inevitable kill. It's awesome. But like this moment right here. Again, this is where Jamie's arc truly begins because with the loss of his hand, like it symbolizes so much because you could tell that he, he values it. He values that hand probably more than well, any other part of his body because like the whole thing, right, is that with that hand, like he has always prized himself as a swordsman and a warrior and not much else. Like the whole irony, right, is that Tywin wants him to be his golden boy, his ruler of Casterly Rock, but Jamie never wanted any of that. Jamie was never really interested in any of that. Jamie always wanted to have you know, the, the pride and the glory, you know, he wanted to serve as a member of the King's guard, you know? And well, I think, the, uh, Benioff and Weiss put it great. Cause they, they give George RR R. Martin the uh, credit here and say that basically because he loses his hand, um, you know, he's no longer who he was. He, he basically is a dead man walking. Yeah. He, he's lost the, um, you know, his ability to fight, which is sort of crucial to his character. And he's just sort of like the walking dead, so to speak. Kind and, of. You know, I think that's one of those things that uh, where that storyline starts and it, it's the life after the Kingslayer. It's the life of 
like who he's going to be and does he really like seek uh, proper redemption for what he has been a part of in terms of what his family has done to the seven kingdoms and you know we really get to see that play out over the course of the next few seasons yeah uh, the ripple effects of it on his character throughout the next couple seasons are pretty awesome and it really sucks even though Jamie ultimately ends up devolving into kind of carrying out just kind of pointless missions just to be a distraction from Cersei and then in the last couple seasons just kind of like having like sort of I would say probably arguably the most compelling arc of any of the characters in season seven before ultimately just getting done dirty like every single other character on the show in the final season this like jamie kind of like his his arc to maturity and kind of like him grappling with his place in the world at now that he that he's lost his whole commodity like it really again it to me it's one of the most unexpected but just awesome like character directions and i remember when i was reading the book of when this moment happened in the storm of swords it'd be like i thought the book up at that point again it was kind of slow and i was kind of like okay you got jamie brand they're kind of arguing back and forth i'm kind of like where is this going and then that moment happens where he gets his hand chopped off and in that moment like it's pretty like you feel it even when you're reading the book you're like holy shit like you're literally left standing there you're like what happens next and like it, 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 it's gonna be fascinating obviously to cover both in this season and the next couple seasons to come but we got one more storyline for the riverlands which is that um again we catch up quickly with Arya and the brotherhood again this is just a quick transition like they're literally just moving between locations right is that they're Dude, leaving I'll, the tell, I'll tell you 100 what happens hot pie basically he's gonna stay at the end he's staying uh, at the, the end basically to pay for all the free meals that the brotherhood got. So they basically <laughs> just sell hot pie right off the bat and hot pie makes a, so much a wolf- for being, so much for being righteous, huh? Yeah, he, he he basically makes a, a wolf based biscuit or something like that yeah. and gives it to Arya. It's Arya, a cute scene. It's a really uh, it's a really sweet, it's a really yeah. touching scene. Listen, I I dig this scene. Arya Arya's like, that's the tail? Oh, that's the tail. She's you know, like, so disgusted, <laughs> but at the moment she's so touched and heartfelt by it, man. I'm like, oh man, this yeah. is such a Disney Channel moment, but oh listen, man, that's just that she, grips me. She bites into it and is like, it's great, Hot Pie. And then we never see Hot Pie again. No, right? we don't. Nope, not true. Oh, not no, no, true. we see him not once, true. right? We see him twice more. We see him oh, twice really? more. We see him once in season four when Brienne stops at the inn and she asks, and she asks, and she's asking about Aria. Oh, or yeah, she's yeah, asking yeah. about Sandra. Right. Hot Pie tells her about Aria. And then we see him one more time in season seven when Aria comes back to Westeros, stops at that same inn, too, by the way, and then is reunited with Hot Pie, and Hot Pie instantly recognizes her. And they actually have, again, it's like, I don't know, like, ah, oh, man. Hot Pie, again, another one of those characters that manages to yeah, escape it, certain death. Listen, Hot Pie is one of those characters, like, who should not be recognizable and, or recognizable and, and, yeah it's like he, he should is. not he should not be like a, a fan sort of guilty pleasure yeah, but, sort of uh, favorite and uh, it's funny totally they, even, totally they even made a, they even made a thing of it afterwards where it's like oh well they're like whatever did happen to hot pie real the actor's name is ben hawking he just ended up opening up his whole bakery after the show because he just <laughs> loved cooking so much <laughs> You know, this that's really all that happens. Like, yeah. uh, the other thing is our, our favorite oh, actor, the, the guy who plays the archer. Oh, bang, a guy, a he, guy. He, he bangs the, the bangs the hound's head. Although yeah, as the exactly. hound's kind of like making fun of him, is like you know, I was like, oh, you're an archer, you're not a real killer. I like you know seeing my deaths up close. You know, and Archer's like, yeah, well, guess what? It didn't stop me from being caught. You know, and then Arya, yeah. you know, Arya's trying to bait him in the kind of the beginning, and she goes up to him, is like, you remember the last time you were here? And he's like, the same as any other shitty end. Why am I supposed to remember? Like again, some more subtle foreshadowing. But yeah, it, it's a really sweet scene. There's a couple of really humorous moments there, you know, just catching us up. And it, it's transitioning yeah, us it, where it, we're going to go it's, with it's, the it's, it's definitely one of those scenes that is, um, you know, kind of filler for this episode. Like, cool moments for sure. And, and like a very touching moment between Arya and Hot, Hot Pie. But, um, you know, 
it's it's basically just to remind you that they're there. Uh, things are moving on, and, yep. and really not much um, I can say really takes place other than just like getting you primed uh, for what happens. Yeah, next. for what happens next. Which oh man, we're getting Barrack Dondarrion, the return of Barrack Dondarrion next episode. So that's gonna be awesome. So again, we're cutting ahead to King's Landing. I know we already talked a lot about the about the pod scene and everything, but again, there's not too much that happens here. But the big incentive again, the, the focus of this King's Landing episode and arc is money because. Obviously, we have that dope ass opening shot with the cut to from like when Rob said, you know, who's not, uh, you know, sweating for anything. Tywin Lannister. You have this awesome imposing shot of the of the camera just going up from Tywin's boots right up to his head as he's standing with his back to the camera as the other council members walk into the new small council chambers, which will oh, effectively take dude. place in the small council chambers. As he yeah, says, it's right next to his chambers, and you can tell the, all these guys scene. are scared shitless. All these guys are scared shitless. Like they all come in, yeah. they're all kind of like wavering. They're not sure what to do. Tywin kind of just like gestures and like sits down at the table. You can you, you can tell immediately like th- this is the real power of Westeros. Yeah, and, right and here. um, th- this scene is uh, so incredible. amazing, like, incredible. Um, you know, I, I, this is one of those episodes where watching the behind the scenes thing where they talk about everything is, you know, go ahead and do it. Uh, you know, a lot of those episodes are really just the writers patting themselves on the back. Yeah. Uh, but this one is, is very interesting. And, and the fact is they break down the scene of, you know, basically Lord Baelish pushes past because he's the most ambitious and he wants to sit next to Tywin, you know, um, Varys, uh, just, Rolls his eyes and, and takes the next position. Um, Pycelle sits the farthest away because he's the most he, scared of him. Well, yeah, Pycelle is just the maester and he just is happy with his position. So he just wants to go undiscovered uh, as long as he can. Yeah. And then it's like Cersei and Tyrion are just sitting there like, what the hell do we do next? Well, and also, Cer- you have to see where Tyrion purposely drags the chair over. Well, yeah, again, but, that, he- but that's after he sees Cersei's reaction. Right, like right. Cersei decides to grab one of the chairs and move it to the other side of the table and sit right next to Tywin like I'm daddy's little girl. And then Tyrion... Uh, as they put it, uh, Benioff and Weiss, they, they basically say that uh, he grabs the chair and makes a joke of it, scraping yeah. it on the ground, yeah. putting it at the other side of the table. And, you know, the whole thing is to draw attention to how ridiculous uh, this whole power struggle is. Um, and, and it's one of those scenes where it's like, yeah, I, I love the blocking of everything. It's so much is said without dialogue. And that's another thing that they, they point out like, they're really proud of this scene. And I think they should be, uh, because you know, everything that they try to accomplish comes across visually. And, um, you know, I will say like the fact that, uh, the end result of this meeting is Tyrion getting the crappy getting position, the, a master, getting the of, master coin. of coin. <laughs> oh man. Oh, it, man. It, it's, it's hey, like, you want the, power? Well, here, well, you, here go. you go. Yeah. And two, two scenes or two things are established from this scene. One, we finally figure out what this mission that little fit that everyone with little finger, that little finger was talking about with Sansa in the premiere was that Tywin is sending little finger as kind of a reward for, um, uh, for his position, both as the Lord of Harrenhal and for bringing the Tyrells into the fold. The now little finger is going to bring the only other family that really doesn't have any kind of, you know, play yet in this war, which is the Aaron's, you know, he's going to send him to the Vale in order to marry Lysa Aaron, the other Aaron siblings, obviously, this is really, um, it's a big move. Yeah. I think this is really subtle. Um, you know, it's basically just here. It's this conversation. Um, you know, you really have to be astute and paying attention to what's going on because, uh, I don't think they really mention it any other time during the season. 
Um, you know, because Littlefinger's just sort of lingering around and um, doesn't really leave until uh, the beginning episode of next season. Six. Episode six is when he leaves. He goes to the Vale, and then he famously kind of comes back to save Sansa during the royal wedding. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's one of those things where, like, um, they don't really focus on the storyline. It's like they just sort of pepper it in. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, uh, the, the famed episode of season four, um, where Joffrey bits the uh, line of the rose. Like, oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. That, it, that's, basically, that's a top five episode for me is where Joffrey you know, dies. He bites the dust and, and then, you know, uh, basically Lord Baelish, uh, wisps Sansa away and the whole veil storyline starts to develop. Um, so this is one of those seeds that's planted early. Um, and it, it's given the appropriate amount of time to grow over the course of, uh, the season or two. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And the other big thing, of course, it establishes again, Tyrion's like, um, you know, in case you haven't noticed, like as, as much fun as this affair is, you know, we also, we have the royal wedding to pay for that. It might well very well be the most expensive thing that the kingdoms have ever, um, you know, I've ever tried to pay for. And time was like, fully agree. That's why I'm making you hand to the king. And Tyrion's kind of like, Tyrion does a double take there. He's like, wow, uh, even uh, for uh, you, uh, mass, really? Master, master coin. of coin. And he's like, guess what? <laughs> a lifetime of, sp- of being outrageously wealthy, it does not make me great at managing money, you know? And, 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 and of course, Cersei is a little sarcastic. Oh, I'm sure you'll be more than capable of handling the job. And later on, right, we obviously we made the long joke about Pod. You know, we have that scene where <laughs> they're going through uh-huh. and Ross is teasing him and she's pulling out the books and then Tyrion does the thing where he rewards him. And then Tyrion kind of breaks out the idea of loans for Braun and Braun's like, oh, well, what if I don't? Well, what if I don't? Jerry's like, well, that's why I'm not lending you money. I'm just paying you, you know? Yeah, I, I think, you know, with the Podrick stuff all aside, like, yeah, that that is totally uh, playing to the male ego uh, side of the Game of Thrones audience. Uh, maybe a little bit of a joke where, you know, it's like uh, some men have it, some men uh, basically bring out the wine and ask for details. Um, you know, so, uh, the fact is, um, the, the main part of the main part of that sequence, uh, is the fact that, uh, what Littlefinger was doing was borrowing money from, uh, Tywin and also from the Iron Bank. Yep. And the fact we hear of the Iron Bank of Bravos too in the show. So he borrowed a lot more money from the Iron Bank and their business model is, yeah, sure. We'll give you the money. Uh, and if you don't pay us, we'll back your enemies. Exactly. As much as you want, but we'll, we'll basically, you know, back your enemies until we get what we want. Uh, and it seems like the bank just wants revenge. Uh, but apparently they have some sort of business plan where even though they seek revenge, they can somehow get the their money back. Yes, indeed. The whole thing that's established here is that, and, and that is established throughout the course of the show is that the bank always gets their due. Ultimately, they always get their due. And Tyrion, again, oh man, just uh, continuing with Tyrion, well, again, Rob is not the only one that's having a downward spiral this season. Tyrion is just from the high that he was at in season two, he's just continuing to get lower. First, he asked for Castle Rock. He didn't get that. Now he's in a thankless position as Master of Coin. We haven't even gotten to the part yet where his family forces him to marry Sansa. Don't worry, that's coming in a couple episodes. But uh, yeah, that. That's pretty much all the time that we spend in King's Landing this episode. Then we cut ahead to North of the Wall with our two storylines that we have going on there. Again, this is the last that we see of Mance Raider for a while. Again, it's I love the oh, line yeah. too. The what he has when they when they come across, they they find like all the dead horses that are established in that. Like, I think it's the first time that we see that symbol that the White Walkers yeah. have to do. He's like all always, the artists aren't always yeah, yeah. the artists. <laughs> like that is a great line. Great it's, line. It's fantastic. I, I love how the uh, you know unfortunately. 
it, it's it's cool. It's if you've seen the NBC show Hannibal, it's like Hannibal. Hell yeah, great they show. Like, you know, it, it's like that show is really good at creating these murder scenes that are just like uh, almost like museum pieces of violence. Uh, and, and that's very yeah. similar. Like the white walkers have laid out the horse pieces and it's a very, like, uh, they took the time to craft this like sort of artistic circle, uh, even though it's violence and it's blood, it, it's death. But it's so awesome. Um, it's so well, but, so well crafted again. Uh, are we yeah. sure the white walkers weren't artists in their time? Like they, they got well, some pretty damn good artistry skills right it, here. It, it's really bizarre to me personally, because, you know, knowing, uh, what happens in later seasons where like they, there's, they zo- there, slaughter there's zo- people. Listen, there's zombie horses, there's zombie dragons, there's zombie everything. Uh, why the hell did they kill these horses? Like they could have just used them Such as zombies in their army. Maybe they uh, had a, maybe they had a surplus. Who knows? No, it, it literally begs the question is like, what was this for? Like, um, you know, was it really to scare them? It's like they're already scared. They're, right. They're, they're already coming scared. together they're already and marching played. south. So I don't know. It, the it, whole point is that that symbol's never really explained. We see it a shit ton of time. I think it has something to do with like, you know, the children of the forest and when they created the White Walkers originally. But no, a hundred percent. Like it, it's got some sort of uh, backstory to it. But I just feel like the show. Uh, never really explores it and it's sort of it happens it's like oh look at this the mysterious white walkers did this and it's kind of creepy isn't it uh and then it's brushed under the carpet you know it's it's not much uh that comes from it uh throughout the series like sure maybe we see the symbol once or twice again but um you know it really uh is disconnected from what the rest of the series is um you know and and just knowing like hey we get the the zombie dragon later on it's like they they could have used these horses so it's yeah. it's like it's it, it, it just you know in Who hindsight knows? looking it's back kind of a dumb this, decision. it's uh, kind this, of a dumb decision this scene is sort of bittersweet because it, it's funny it's enjoyable like oh look at the uh the artistry here yeah. like the fact the, that the, they're pointing it out exactly um, yeah the, the and, big thing that's established the big thing that's established by this scene is the fact that like this is the confirmation that man's needed it's like okay the the, the night's watch was attacked and they are weak and they are retreating and he even says it's like yeah i he's like i don't know what drove more north but i wouldn't put it past him but either way he was a fool for coming north because now he's going back with half his forces and now this is the confirmation that man's needed he knows that the wall is vulnerable so now he tells Tormund, he's like get south of the wall attack castle black from the south uh what we you hit them from the south we hit them from the north they're not gonna be able to defend you'll know when to attack us i'm gonna like the biggest fire that the north has ever seen yeah and he exactly. sends john and he sends john with him uh along with rl and egret in order to kind of monitor John and make sure that he stays loyal and to tell him, it's like, yeah, if he proves disloyal in any way, chuck him off the wall, you know, yeah. as far and, as and that goes. North of the wall, basically, um, you know, it, it essentially becomes a, a pretty awesome storyline. Yeah. Um, because, you know, Mormont brings his men back to Craster. Yep. And in that scene, like Craster basically is looking at his men. And his men are, are really like grabbing their daggers, uh, ready to kill Craster. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're they're hungry for blood here. Like you they're just they're see ready. It. Yeah, they're ready to kill Mormont. They're ready to kill everybody. And the only reason why Craster lets them in is the hope that his charity is able to last them to move on. Like I think Craster uh, realizes what he might be in for if uh, things go right. south here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Krasner obviously is, is his personality and he's not going to have his home invaded. So, you know, it's one of those things where 
Um, you know, tensions are thick here. Yes, indeed. Uh, and they're only made worse, too, obviously, because we have Gilly's screams that are going throughout the entirety of the scene. You know, Gilly, obviously, was established as being pregnant last season. And this season, now, obviously, we see that she's giving birth to the baby. And obviously, we obviously we know the tension of what happens if, if that baby is the wrong sex when it comes out. And of course, it's revealed to be a baby boy. So, you know what that and, means. And, and I think it's uh, there's a scene where Craster's like, you know, have her bite down on a rag on a rag or she'll have to bite down on my fist or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's like he's just as brutal as ever. Uh, this is also the introduction of uh, Burn Gorman. The, the Burn Gorman. Hell oh, yeah. Love that guy. Love so many, that guy. So, so many Pan great and- shows. Oh, what, man. Uh, what is, what is it? Also, my fa- one of my favorite dumb movies ever, Pacific Rim, as the other half of him and Charlie yeah. Day's duo. So, so Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. Uh, he's uh, what's in the, it called? the Expanse is yeah, another he is one of in the these Expanse. shows he's in. He he's been in a couple um, things. What is it? This AMC show, uh, Turn, about yeah, the- Yeah, Dark Knight uh, Rises. Why? Is he in Peaky Blinders? I feel like he's a Peaky Blinders guy. Um, I'm not sure about the Peaky Blinders, but, uh, you know, it could be, you know, uh, he definitely was in Torchwood, the, the spinoff of Doctor Who. Um, uh, so like, you know, this guy, uh, fantastic actor and love this guy, you know, he, he's, uh, I believe he's in like four episodes playing this yeah. character. It's, it's this um, episode of the next episode. And then that's the last we see of him until John leaves the expedition North that we kind of catch up with him next, next season. He has like a couple episodes to show off and man, he, he's another one. He is just chewing through scenery. Like he is just mad. He yeah. is awesome. So what, what a great actor to sort of bring in for this, uh, malicious part. Like, you know, obviously, it's the downfall of Mormont. It's the downfall of Craster. And he's someone that basically puts the Night's Watch at, at risk uh, because he's decided to rebel and sort of uh, lead the, the disenfranchised members of the uh, Night's Watch uh, on this sort of like little bit, little bit of a rebellion, I guess. Uh, yeah. But like for the most part, um, you know, he plays a bit part. Like it's it's one of those things where it's like, this really just weakens the Night's Watch, uh, puts them in Mance's hands, you know, like exactly where Mance wants them is to be extremely broken and ready to be conquered. Um, and, you know, it's it's just one of those things where the Night's Watch is is trending towards doom. You know, it's, it's not like they're going to survive uh, being so... Um, you know, basically uh, polarized in terms of who their leadership should right, be. Right, as, as far and, as most of them go. And the other thing, too, also, this is, it's funny, like, my kind of relationship with Burn Gorman, what's interesting is that, um, so I saw him, right, in Pacific Rim. I kind of, like I said, I, the, my whole thing is I didn't start watching the show consistently on TV until season four. So I binge-watched the first three seasons, and I kind of, like, missed a couple of the bit part players. And then I saw Pacific Rim, loved him in that, because I just, I love that movie. I love that movie so much. And then I saw him in yeah, season four. Yeah, it doesn't four, make much sense. I'm like, hey, so, that guy. But, uh, oh, like, it makes no sense. None at all. Yeah, Pacific Rim is uh, a guilty pleasure. I'll guilty say. pleasure. Okay, it's, you want to see giant monsters fighting giant robots? You're gonna get exactly that. It's one. It's one of the few movies yeah. that just delivers it, it, on its it, premise. If you want anything to make logical sense, you don't watch. Pacific you know, you don't watch Pacific Rim for the logic. You know, you don't watch it for that. But um, <laughs> yeah, ultimately, again, what's established here is again, we don't get like the big moment until next episode. But like, what's established here is again is that the wildlings are on the up and up, and the Night's Watch, and the, the, the Night's Watch is not in a good place right now. They're yeah, what's trending the the, the name of the next episode is like his his and watch now has his ended. watch is ended. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, oh man, I can't wait for next week. It, it's yeah, gonna oh, be next really week's gonna one. be a banger. You got that. You got Daenerys bringing it to the slave masters. Oh, the next week is gonna be a banger. I already know it. But uh, speaking speaking of, uh, you know who else's watch is ended? 
don't know who. who? Theods, because again, like oh, the watch man. over. <laughs> Dude, dude, can we not talk about Theon? Can we? This is this is one of the few episodes where like he actually like almost sort of gets a win because the whole thing right well, is Ramsey continuing to play his games helps him escape. He's listen, on the run for a little bit. Ashley makes it. Is being chased by the men. Almost gets caught by the men. And a really weird scene. Like the men almost like rape him, and it's really well, well, they go um, they go full deliverance on him. Like, full deliverance. Like, yeah, like it's hey, crazy. Uh, squeal, little pig. You know, type yeah. type. Like they're going all in, so to speak. Um, yeah, and then Ramsey uh, comes and kills all them, and then it's a really awesome yeah, little but, cue but here. Here's the thing that's interesting: is um, clearly Ramsey is sweeping up the uh, chamber and sort of hiding his identity, right? And at the same time, you know, when he comes ac- across them, uh, about to really uh, do some uh, malicious things to Theon, uh, he decides to, you know shoot them with arrows and put them down. And the one that's surviving at the end says uh, you what, little bastard. Yeah, exactly. So like, it's definitely, um, it's a, what, I'll tell you what exactly what, what that is. What's going on in terms it's, of the, the dam, the dynamics in the Boltons so, uh, that, uh, that we don't really see on screen. Right. We only get this little tease. It's what, so uh, for me, at least I think that scene serves a couple of different Insta- a couple of different purposes. One, it's a kind of because right because at the time, right that way when you're when you were watching this in real time, you don't know that that's Ramsey, right? And that's kind of the whole kind of again like part of his character where it's, it's like you know the playing up to the reveal, you know the deception. Oh, he's not who he says he is. You know, it's kind of very it's similar to how we're introduced to him in the books because in the books we meet him, he's posing. And, and he actually is introduced a, a book ahead. He's introduced in a Clash of Kings. And he's posing as Reek, the original Reek that was his first servant before he made Theon the new Reek. He's posing as that guy for half the book before he reveals his identity to Theon at the end. And the whole thing that's established is that here is that Ramsey's a trickster. Ramsey likes to play everyone around his finger, even his own men. And it's established also like it's a precedent that is set like he um, was it, what's it called. He does what he wants with his soldiers, even if it, it ends up killing him. So it does that. Right. And and the whole purpose here is so his men have probably only given been given one directive by him, which is to, you know, torture Theon and keep him hidden at all costs. And the whole thing is that when he kills them, it's a double meaning. One, it serves to kind of illustrate and inform us, the audience, that this is Ramsey, because Ramsey is famously Roose Bolton's bastard son. He's kind of the other infamous bastard of the North outside of John. And the other thing that it serves is just the fact that it's like, oh, he's just kind of an asshole where he's he kind of like, you know, he kind of, you know, you said you were going to let us have her fun. And then you just kind of you're we're just more pawns in your game. You know, as far as that goes. So that to me is the purpose of that. Story. But you're right. It's very kind of weird and unclear kind of the dynamics of the Bolton. But yeah, I just took no, it because, as like, yeah, everyone um, is just Ramsey's pawn. Listen, like looking back at, at Ramsey's sort of storyline and how it develops in this TV show, um, you know, it, it makes you think like, are these other uh, sort of men uh, that can get in Ramsey's way to his ultimate goal, which is taking over the, the Bolton household? And, you know, it's one of those things where if he's toying with them and, you know, he kills them and he gets them out of his way, um, you know, it could sort of serve as a a purpose to why he, uh, you know, starts his game with Theon and lets him go and lets him get chased into the woods, you know, because Ramsey needs to get rid of someone that's in his way. And I I, I I guess, but but the the only reason why I don't necessarily buy into that is because like Ramsey up until the, up until a certain point, obviously later on in the show, but Ramsey is Roos's only son. And the whole thing is that like Roos 
had like one other son who died very early on at a young age, obviously, you know, when before he sired Ramsey. And the whole thing is that like Ramsey is kind of like has his run of the castle. You know, he is effectively like the whole thing that's that's established in the next season is that Ramsey is has been, you know, left control of the castle. Like he is running the Dreadfort, you know, to his women, uh, to his women and, and pleasure. And the whole thing, right, is that he is largely not at all worried and kind of all confident here and kind of, you know, is, is displaying that in his very subtle way because he knows that at least for right now, he has no competition. It's not until Roos brings back one of Walder Frey's daughters who, who births his natural born son, who Ramsey then ends up brutally murdering. And, and oh, yeah, six, yeah, his yeah. Ramsey realized like, that his authority is, uh, that is, is, um, is, is threatened. What, a, yeah, that, that storyline is, um, uh, pretty like amazing in terms of like taking Ramsey who is a despicable character to begin with and just elevating him to a new heights of uh, being despicable. Um, yeah, I think this particular sequence that we see today is, is, uh, in this particular episode is a little bit muddled based on what I know is happening in, in, you know, Ramsey's storyline, uh, you know, because it starts off his real, you know, character development and, you know, I'm not quite sure uh, what the purpose of him killing off his own men is. Uh, I don't think it really like obviously he, he's sort of malicious and he's just willing to, as you say, use people as pawns. But uh, I don't think I mean, he literally that- does it to one of the girls, the two girls that right. He uses to seduce Theon in order to like, you know. Get, get, get it up there as far as like, you know, when he eventually, you know, chops oh, yeah, it off. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. He, he just takes one of those girls, just feeds her to the dog next season for like what? There's like some dumb reason that doesn't even make sense, you know? Yeah, it, it's a, a lot of his, you know, maliciousness is it goes unchecked. Um, and, you know, I understand it serves to just make him seem like psychotic and, you know, this, you never know what he's going to do. Um, but some of it I feel is, is just a little too much and doesn't really add to his character. And so, yes, like I think by the time we get to the battle of the bastards, we're uh, fed up with this character. We want to see him lose. Like we understand that John Sansa and the rest of the sort of uh, people that are trying to take back Winterfell, um, you know, are underpowered and really don't have a chance, but ultimately, um, you know, it's the storyline does play out the way it needs to, but there's, uh, in television form of just like, um, you know, if, if there's any filler that happens in game of Thrones, it's some of this unexplained, uh, you know, ruthlessness that just doesn't really need to be there for, for Ramsey Bolton. Yeah. But again, that's kind of the part of game of Thrones. There's going to be a lot of unexpected ruthlessness. So we have one more scene before our last sequence of the episode, which is again, we stop briefly on Dragonstone. Again, we, we get bits and pieces of Dragonstone throughout the rest of, of the first half of the show before we get into the second half, which is Melisandre. It's departing to parts unknown. Uh, she tells Stannis, uh, you know, Stannis, you can tell Stannis, Stannis is horny. Stannis is like, okay, I fully give it myself to you. He's like, I want, he's like, I want, I want to make another son. Wow. And Mel Sanders straight up tells him, he's like, you're not strong enough. You do this again, it might kill you, you know, as far as that yeah. goes. He's like, I've already taken Listen, enough of your I, blood as far I, as that goes. Dom, I, I don't know if I would have put it that way. Like, uh, clearly, uh, Stannis. I mean, I'm not putting that, but that's how she puts it. Yeah, Stannis doesn't want to see her go, but, uh, you know, that's mainly clearly. because. Because it's like, hey, we just lost this battle, and he, he's not quite sure about her. Right. Uh, you know, he's. I love how he's, he's still doing everything that she says, and she, he doesn't even know what she's doing. Yeah, but he, like, to a certain degree, I think, you know, Stannis still understands 
um, you know, what Davos was saying and why he was uh, sort of uh, so hell-bent against her. Um, you know, but it's one of those things where he puts it, like Stannis could have killed Davos. Yeah, but he oh, does. So he put, but he, he puts him in the prison, and I think this is because he's you know doesn't really um, trust the Red Woman, so to speak, and and you know it's one of those things where he wants to see her actions pay off uh, before he does any more harm to people that he uh, you know finds close to him, like Davos, um, and strangely enough, I, I would argue that Davos is. Um, you know, probably more endeared to Stannis uh, than Stannis's own wife and child. Indeed, yeah. And then this is all, ironically enough, because this is also the season that we meet um, uh, Selyse and uh, Princess Shireen uh, Baratheon, obviously Stannis' wife and daughter. But uh, yeah, it's a quick scene. It's a setup scene, but it basically establishes like, yeah, Stannis is not done. Stannis is not out of this conflict yet. And Melisandre and her, you know, witchy motives, they, they still have far reaching to go. But, uh, oh man, Pat, this is once again solidifying that Daenerys is here to fucking stay because we cut back to Astapor and I know that like kind of like the majority of like the payoff for this is technically the more badass scene, but the buildup to this is awesome because again, we see obviously here the titular walk of punishment as her, Jorah and Barrison are walking down uh, the path. Obviously, Jorah and Barrison are debating, you know, but Barrison kind of ingratiated himself to her pretty quickly as far as, you know, now being one of her trusted advisors, you know, they, they're disagreeing as far as, um, you know, wh- wh- where how to go about this. Um, Barrison thinks they should go back to Pentos and get sell swords. Jorah thinks that they should stick with the Unsullied because it's like, Pend- look, sell swords at the end of the day are going to sell you out. Unsullied and also, you know, Jorah brings up a very good point, which is that sacks and sieges, you know, we want to avoid another King's Landing situation, at least, you know, the original sack of King's Landing, and he's like, that happens when you have soldiers when they have lust for blood and everything, you know. Uh, Unsullied will not do that, you know. Unsullied will only do what you tell them to do, and that is why they're more beneficial. And Daenerys, you can tell, is like, it's still more so in the camp with Jorah, you know. She's been with Jorah longer. Jorah's been with her since day one. Barrison just joined. Now, Barrison, he hasn't had as much time to ingratiate himself to her the way that Jorah has, and so she goes before Krasnus, the slave master, and tells him, he's like, uh, she's like, you know, I'm going to buy all 8,000 of your Unsullied. And he's like, you barely have enough to buy 100, you know, as far as that goes. 100 uh, and maybe, uh, sorry, 1,000 and maybe a couple uh, maybe a couple of extras, you know, that, uh, that'll throw in as a gift. You know, what else? Well, how are you going to pay for the other 7,000? She straight up says, she's like, I'll give you one of my dragons. You, you, I want these slaves. I need these slaves. Yeah. These dragons hey, are not going to help me right hey, now. Hey, it's and, a and great something, Oh, it's yeah, a great yeah. uh, You know, uh, basically, both her advisors can agree upon. They both uh, look no, at it. They're like, you don't want to do this. Oh, this is Tr- a bad idea. Trust us. It's a terrible idea. These dragons are more valuable than any army that you could possibly get. This is a bad, bad and they're like, this uh, dragon in the hands of this fucker? Hell no. Like, that's a terrible idea. And you kind of like, I love the scene that comes afterwards too, where they're both disagreeing and she both kind of like looks both of them down. And she's like, if you both want to remain in my service, you will not question me in front of other people again. And like, I'm, I'm yeah. like, well, I, I think the main thing is like, uh, you know, the fact is, uh, knowing what happens in this storyline, uh, essentially she's, you know, relying on the two of them to react the way that uh, right. they do. She needs, uh, she because, needs that reaction in order to like kind of sell it full. Cause yeah, otherwise the slave master is going to know something's up. Exactly. You're selling the whole trick that uh, is about to take place. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's really bizarre that she would put it that way uh, instead of just being like, listen, um, you know, uh, just wait and see. You know. It's well, I guess like, in that sense, she it chastises. Them, I, I guess like, in that sense, it makes sense because the whole thing right is you're right. She doesn't want Jorah or Barrison to give away the fact that this is a ploy. And I guess if they're kind of in on it beforehand, they might. 
uh, the accidentally give it away. But there's another motivator that she's flexing. She's learning to be a leader and she realizes like, yeah, if I'm going to be a leader and I'm going to have people look up to me, I can't have make it look like my advisors are the ones that are running the gamut and everything. I get like, obviously they're here to advise me yeah, and everything. But she like, has to I, make decisions. She, she has, has to, to make it seem around. like she's the one in charge. If she wants to rule yeah. at some point, she has to rule through example and everything. And she's not going to do that. And she looks like to like, again, a little girl who can't go anywhere without her two male advisors, you know, like that's a big part of that as well, you know? And I think the other old thing that also kind of reflects that and kind of shows it like Daenerys, um, like uh, Jamie, ironically enough, is on the way, like kind of to her death for the rest of the show is her selecting a Missandei. This is where she um, she officially brings Missandei into her service. She demands Missandei as a gift. And this is where the two of them start to you know start to develop their bond as far as that goes. Where even though obviously they come oh, from yeah. vastly different origins, you know they come from kind of like similar circumstances as far as they were both kind of essentially like sold into slavery essentially. And, you know what's what's uh, our famous uh, line that we heard from the uh, season finale uh, last year? Uh, uh, Valor Morghulis. Yeah, you know, all men must die. All and, men must and, die, and here, but all men must serve as well. Here's the response: It's like, well, we're not men, you know, right? Yep. So, uh, you know, a nice little uh, power strut at the end of this episode, indeed, uh, for Daenerys and Melisandre. Yeah, uh, Miss uh, Miss Sandy. Sandy. Yeah, right. There's Sorry. so many names. There's too many names. There's Robert and Robin. There's Asha yeah, and Osha. Yeah. There's uh, what's it, what's it called Melisandre and Missande. Uh, there's there's a lot of confusing names as far as as far as that goes. Um, Hodor and Othor. Like there's too many similar sounding names as far as that goes. Um, <laughs> I think Varys has one too. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's a really good episode. Really good episode. A lot more setup, and again, we're getting towards like the midpoint. Again, it's it's a lot more of a slow burn, but like it's not quite to season one in the sense of like where you're kind of waiting you're like okay where is this going you know you're kind of yeah, like yeah. you're in well, it you're intrigued even the slow stuff like you can tell there's stuff happening yeah i think with this episode in particular like yeah there it might be a lot of information that's coming across but uh man the, the scenes are really so well good. done they're really well, well done they're starting to breathe um, you can finally see where they're like starting to come together yeah. in a way that maybe the first couple seasons didn't really have you're getting scenes like, uh, you know, the whole uh, characterization of Podrick, which uh, really elevates that character from like someone that you would think would just die in the next season and, <laughs> you know, be done with it. Um, but it elevates him to sort of a fan favorite. Uh, you know, he's going to be with us for the entire series or for at least the majority of it. Um, you know, the, the whole, uh, you know, uh, basically scene with the, the small council like that. Uh, is a treasure within itself. And just to, to see uh, the visual storytelling involved in that scene, um, you know, there, there's so much to really pay attention to in this episode and, and so much to cherish uh, that, you know, for a, a random episode three where, you know, it's really just setting up the rest of the season, uh, it, it's definitely bloody fantastic absolutely the setup is all finished and the next couple episodes we're really going to get into as chris loves to quote so often the meat and potatoes so i'll let you guys know like i said we pre-recorded this episode ahead of time uh tbd as far as that goes as to whether we will have an episode next week is all that i'm going to say but all i know is that next week by the time that this episode goes up we will have uh you know the return of a little hbo show that i have been looking forward to very much that would be the premiere of succession season three we'll finally be back after a long time waiting next Sunday, October 17th. So keep it. So I, I will let you guys know throughout the week at some point on Instagram or the various social medias, um, as far as to whether or not we will have an episode next week. But, uh, Pat, where can the good people find you? 
Hey, listen, I, I'm uh, basically jumping on, uh, you know, talking TV here, uh, talking Thrones uh, to help you guys out. You know, basically discuss this episode, analyze the show, uh, you know, help help you create content. Uh, but hey, one day, uh, you know, I do plan on using Instagram at Patrick W. Heber. So once I decide to do that and start posting, uh, I better hope you to see you there subscribed. Absolutely. Hell yeah. You're doing a great job, Pat. I couldn't do this with anyone else, honestly. And you can, of course, follow me at Movie Nerd Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. But more importantly, you guys can continue to show the love, show the support for this channel. Click the subscribe button. Click the bell next to it. Click the notifications button. That way you guys get notified every time you we put up new content. Click the like button. Leave a comment. And click Just basically click anything on the page. You guys know what to do as far as that goes, as far as helping us out. Be sure to also follow our Facebook and Instagram at Talking TV Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. Instagram, 12 scenes in a short film. Watch more fucking movies as the Battle of the Thrones continues. Uh, Share more details, I guess. I don't know. We'll see you guys next time.